Hello, welcome to another edition of MFS Strategist Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Almeida. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as an offer of securities or investment advice. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. In this episode, I'm joined by MFS's ESG fixed income analyst, Mahesh Jayakumar, to talk about ESG, integration, and something called greenflation. All right. So um, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So uh, give the audience context. When did you join MFS? Where did you come from? And maybe even go back. What got you interested in financial services? So I am very happy and proud to say that I've been part of the MFS family for three years now. Mm-hmm. I joined in, in, 20, in spring 2019. I was previously with uh, State Street Global Advisors for a decade. I used to run actually beta uh, fixed income portfolios in both an ETF and commingled space in the credit sp- in, in, in uh, global credit and uh, and uh, govery, govery bonds. So all fixed income. All fixed yep. income. Uh, and it's, it's, it's funny, I tell people with a lot of pride that I used to be, I'm a computer scientist by training, mm-hmm. right? So I used to write code for a living. I've written code in the airline industry. I've written code in the telecom industry. Um, went to business school and switched to finance and joined State Street at that time through their management training program. Uh, and, and so my tech friends always tease me about going to the dark side. Like, <laughs> you dished us and you right. moved to finance from the world of tech. Uh, but I find fixed income markets, macro, absolutely fascinating, right? I kick myself, like, how how did I not get interested in the markets when I was, you know, firmly in the uh, technology industry, when I was writing code for a living? Because everybody should know about the markets. Everybody should understand what is happening with inflation. Why is the or price how money works. Or how money works. Right. So it's amazing. So to me, the financial services industry, and especially being an, an investment manager and a research analyst, is one of the most exciting roles because you are constantly learning, seeking, understanding. What better job than that, right? Right, right. So, um, and then I also spent some time at Oppenheimer Funds okay. in New York uh, in between State Street and MFS. So you're an ESG analyst for us in fixed income, so we understand uh, the fixed income component. When did the ESG element come into your life? The ESG element came into my life at State Street because we, at in 2011, Believe it or not, we launched one of the first um, green bond uh, smart beta okay. systematic strategies. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to give dedicated green bond exposures, especially in asset allocation context. You can imagine at that time, green bonds were extremely high quality, super issuance, govy issuance. And the idea was to replace part of a, of a govy, pure govy portfolio in asset allocation context with green, if you will, mm-hmm. um, because the use of proceeds of green bonds, after all, are supposed yeah. to directly fund ESG right. projects and environmental projects. Yeah. So that was my first taste of, of ESG. But at that time, we also ran, just like we do at MFS today, we also ran a lot of ESG-based exclusionary funds and okay. strategies for clients. Yeah. Um, you can imagine religious investors, um, the churches of the world, have always had a bent towards excluding right. certain sectors yep. in faith their portfolios. Faith-based, faith-based, yeah. faith-based investors, value-based investors. So um, MFS, uh, my previous employer, all most managers I know, their ESG 101, if you will, mm-hmm. as an asset manager, was running this sort of exclusions-based. Yeah. Customized solutions. Customized SMAs, exactly. And, and there's nothing wrong with that approach because um, the idea is that, look, I'm expressing my values right. in my portfolio. I don't want to fund 
whatever, fossil fuels, right. tobacco. Yeah. Well, a client wants a blue suit. You give him a blue, blue suit. Blue suit, exactly. <laughs> but, and that, that's what uh, many managers are still doing, by the way. And uh, it's okay. It's values-based investing. It's ESG 101. Mm -hmm. Now, I would argue that there's better ways to do ESG investing. Right. Uh, and, of course, the market has picked up on that. MFS is firmly a believer of um, ESG has to be a holistic means yep. of incorporating into an investment process and not a blunt tool where you yeah. just exclude sectors and that's it. You don't care about the sustainability profile. You can't do that. Well, let's unpack that and I'll play for the sake of the audience devil's advocate. So uh, I think the way the industry talks about ESG today is it's an output and I'd offer it's an input just like any other fundamental input. Um, when I think about uh, investing, oftentimes the things that can really blow you up go awry. It's things that you can't count. Um, that you couldn't wrap your arms and and maybe not the E, but certainly the, the S in the G in, in ESG. So talk a little bit about maybe some of the problems you see in the state of ESG investing today and what you think the right approach is. It's a, it's a, I love that analogy, Rob. It's not an output, but it's an input. That's exactly how MFS thinks about it. So if you're an active investor mm -hmm. and you really want to, and you think about how we invest in fixed income, you think about business strategy, what are the sources of revenues and yep. uses of cash? Yep. You think about the issuer's credit profile mm -hmm. and, and, and what is the chance for a downgrade or an upgrade. Yeah. You think about liquidity of a bond, right? Is can I If I buy this bond from this issuer, can I trade it in the future? Yeah. You also think about relative value. Is this particular issuer's bonds trading rich or cheap? Mm -hmm. Now, as I've mentioned all those factors, ESG is one of the other factors that you would consider in this multi-pronged equation of how you look at an issuer. Yeah. And the reason ESG is important is because it's a non-financial factors. Think about what ES and G are, right? These like are non-financial okay. factors. Yeah. And the idea with non-financial factors and the reason you look at them is number one, they are a risk mitigation tool, right? So if in fixed income, if you think about the fact that we're going to get par back at the end of the maturity of our mm -hmm. holding, um, you're managing for downside risk, right? Not to say that you can't take advantage of opportunities that might keep the bond stronger, but in general, in fixed income, as a practitioner, you're thinking about downside risk and avoiding downside risk. The idea of looking at ESG as non-financial factors is precisely to avoid downside risk because if an ESG risk manifests itself, just like you said, in a controversy, in a blow-up, mm -hmm. what happens? That causes bonds to widen and then yeah. draw down. So the idea is, it creates financial materiality. It, exactly. Yeah. It creates financial materiality. And the idea then is, is this non-financial factor risk somehow going to play into financial materiality via the transmission mechanisms that you can think of? Is it a hit to revenues? Is it going to increase your expenses? Yeah. Is it going to be a balance sheet liability in the future? Yeah. So this is why understanding ESG factors is extremely important. Yeah. It, it should be part of your holistic investment thesis, if you will. And that's exactly how we do it. So then let, let's take a step back. Give us a, a, a day in the life. So obviously, I know the answer to this question, because we've worked together now for over three years, and, and I watch you inside the fixed income department. But how are you trying to help MFS investors uh, contextualize and, and, and incorporate that into their models? So uh, my, the, the most exciting part of my day job is to work hand in hand with the credit analysts mm -hmm. um, in multiple ways. Number one, guide our credit analysts who are the ones actually doing the work, but guide them on exactly what you said, financial materiality. So understand 
what ESG factors are material from an impact on the finance of the of a particular issuer or company. So, as you can imagine, for example, in the uh, for in the oil and gas industry, the E pillar, the environment pillar, yeah. is extremely material because of transition risk, climate transition risk. Yeah. So, if there is going to be a tax on carbon in the future, if there is going to be decreasing demand for fossil fuels, what does that mean for the future of these companies? Yeah. So, the environmental pillar is extremely important for oil and gas companies. Vice versa, think about banks and financial institutions and service companies. What's the most important pillar for them? It's the S pillar, right? right? Human capital, yep. customers, product quality and safety. Yeah. These are some of the most important risks for services firms. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the governance pillar earlier because the governance pillar is something the credit analysts have always thought about, right. even before you formalized it right. under the yeah. ESG pillar. It's not new, we just exactly. Right. Right. exactly. So, um, so the idea there is to guide and make sure that our credit analysts are thinking about the most material uh, ESG factors. The second aspect of working with them, especially in fixed income, unlike equities, is we're not infinite time, uh, shareholders, right? That our time horizon, unlike an equity shareholder, is not infinite. You own a short bond or an intermediate bond or a long bond. Yep. So you have to understand, yes, a particular ESG issue might play out. Right. But is it going to play out in the time horizon right. as the owner of the bond that I'm concerned yeah, You've about? got a three-year bond, but this is a risk factor in- Ten in, years. Right. Is it going to affect the valuation? Right. Or is there a chance for a risk happening? No. So understanding materiality, understanding time horizons mm -hmm. is, is one of the most important aspects of working with our credit analysts. The other thing that I talk about is this concept of themes and emerging themes. Mm -hmm. So the idea with ESG themes is they can cut across multiple sectors. So if you think about climate, climate can cut across any 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 sector. And so the impact of climate risk is particular to that particular sector. So if you think about autos, mm -hmm. right? Look at what the auto companies are doing. They're trying to move away from internal combustion engine, yeah. ICE vehicles yeah. as a product, mm -hmm. to um, EVs. And the idea there is, look, if we need to decarbonize our economy, transportation is one of the biggest contributors to carbon emissions. Right. So the auto companies are basically saying our part as part of the decarbonization journey, and remember, they are also going to get affected by taxes on tailpipe emissions. Right. Yes. right? It's, it's not only the oil and gas industry, right. it's also the transportation industry. So in their case, they're like, uh, climate risk and decarbonization to the auto industry is all about portfolio uh, transitioning their portfolio from ICE to EVs. Yep. In the oil and gas industry, the transition might be from reducing fossil fuels as a, pro as a product to renewables, right? One of the things energy companies are very good at, they understand project development. They mm -hmm. understand deployment of large capital, managing capital risk to undertake a large energy project. It's the same know-how that they can apply to renewable energy projects that yeah. they've historically done for fossil fuel projects. Okay. So you're seeing... Um, some oil and gas companies basically increase their portfolio of renewables right. and plan to slowly transition away from fossil fuel production, while others are focusing on, look, we're not going to stop producing fossil fuels, but we're going to try to make our fossil fuel production better, cleaner. For example, the biggest things that oil and gas companies are doing today is methane abatement because methane is a uh, mm -hmm. methane gas is a byproduct of oil and oil and well production, and so the idea is. To, to make sure that methane doesn't leak. And you can imagine methane is four times as potent a greenhouse as carbon dioxide. Yeah. And therefore, 
these companies, to them, to certain oil and gas companies, decarbonization means reducing the overall GHG footprint, the, you know, the carbon yeah. footprint, and that means focusing on avoidable leaks, for example. Yeah. So each sector will have its own implementation of what it means from a climate and a decarbonization perspective, but that's an example of, of a large theme like climate affecting multiple sectors. Right. So about a month ago, in the stairwell, we were talking about inflation, and we're just coming off of May's CPI 40-year high. But you said something to me that really stuck out. You called it greenflation. Talk a little bit about that. So let's let's turn back the clock. Mm-hmm. 60s, 70s, you had um, really rapid industrialization globally, including the U.S., and companies were not necessarily thinking about their environmental footprint mm-hmm. or how they behaved. What are the consequences of polluting yeah. the, the water yeah. in the re environment? It's just maximize profitability. You know, it's just maximize profitability yeah. at any cost, including, unfortunately, the environment. Yep. Fast forward. Forget the ESG movement for a minute. Right, right. Stakeholders, and when I say stakeholders, governments, consumers, yeah. employees, are all realizing we need to do our part in minimizing damage to the environment and to our surroundings. We need to treat our employees better, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We need to treat our communities in which we're doing business better, et cetera. And you can call it ESG right. or any other name, but the idea is that there is now going to be a cost to corporations globally to become better citizens, to become yeah. behave yeah. better. More sustainable. and More sustainable. And so that's obviously going to bleed through into extra yeah. costs. Someone has to pay for it. Somebody has to pay for it. The companies themselves have to pay for it, or yeah. they can pass it on right. to the consumers. Now, I'd argue in some cases, in a premium product, the consumer might be willing to pay more right. yes. for a product yeah. that has been yeah. produced sustainably yeah. by the company versus an unsustainable yeah. Particularly product. Particularly if, if they're in an oligopoly industry. In, industry, or, absolutely. Yeah. But I would, also, I would also say, in some cases, it's going to be it's going to be Tina. There is no alternative, right? right. You know, we love yeah. the use of Tina, right? <laughs> but not in this context, but I'll put it, use it in this context, which is what happens if you don't change your sustainability behavior? Yeah. You're likely going to be out of business. Yeah. Compliance is expensive and non-compliance is even more, more expensive. expensive <laughs> right? You're going to be probably out of business because your competitors are going to use right. sustainability as an advantage to show consumers yeah. how they can produce something better, cheaper, greener, Yeah. right? So this idea of greenflation is that, yes, you're going to have to spend to become a better sustainable firm. Yeah. But greenflation is not only that. Think about the fact that we talked about EVs just a few minutes ago. So the production of electric vehicles requires heavy use of nickel, cadmium, copper, etc. So the race to source these precious metals and other base metals in order to produce uh, car batteries, in order to produce EV batteries, right. is going to drive soaring demand for metals. Yeah, and you're seeing it. In, and you're already prices. seeing it yeah. today. Right. So that is going to continue. That's another part of greenflation right. is this right. is the increase in metal prices into the future because of demand for them, not only for EVs, but storage, battery storage of, of power, you know, more advanced digital electronics that requires these sorts of metals. Right. Any sort of digitization, battery technology, automation is going to drive up yeah. metal prices. And, and that's another part of, of, of greenflation. 
The third part of greenflation is you are already seeing physical risk, physical climate risk, wreck havoc on the climate, right? You're seeing floods when you don't, when you have not seen. People talked about the once in a hundred year flood or once in a 500 year flood. And now the idea is those once in a hundred year floods are occurring every five yeah, years, yeah, it's not every decade. Years, right. So you can imagine what that sort of physical risk does to agriculture yeah. and agriculture crop producing land. So if crop producing land is going to experience more weather shocks, the productivity of that land is going to go down. Yep. And so that's going to hike up food prices. Yeah. Right? You're, already, you're already seeing that in yeah. play today, more by the way. More stress on the supply. Oh, you're already seeing it, right. Through the, through the yeah. Russia-Ukraine war, as, yeah. as we know it. There, it wasn't a climate shock. It was a man-made war shock. Right. But nevertheless, this is what happens when grains cannot reach half of Africa and, and the developing world. So... Even if you don't have a war, if you have climate-related weather risk on crops, yeah. that's going to drive up the price of food. Yeah. And finally, deglobalization. We, you and me, have talked about deglobalization. What does it mean for onshoring supply chains? That's extra costs. Yeah. And you could argue, what is the connection between deglobalization and ESG, you ask, Rob? Well, maybe you are reshoring production to friendlier regimes right. as opposed to hostile uh, countries. Uh, and therefore, you're basically managing governance risk, for lack of a better word, right. Right. <laughs> by reshoring right. production to friendlier uh, regimes. So all in all, you know, I am, the more I think about this very carefully, I don't see how we're going to escape greenflation. Right. Now, I'm not passing judgment on whether it's good or bad. Yep. I'm just stating the facts that these are the conditions yep. that will lead to right. higher prices, higher production costs, and higher expenses. Well, and let me skip to the punchline. So you mentioned, thinking back to the 50s and 60s, if you look at any chart and you see the growth of the Dow or the S&P and you juxtapose that against GDP, it looks like a massive alligator mouth, particularly the last 10 to 12, 13 years. There's a reason for that. So you had profit maximization that came at the expense of stakeholders. It might have came at the expense of the labor base. It might have came at the expense of the environment, pollution, et cetera, et cetera. And these things are reversing. So exactly. it's not just the cost of capital, but it's onshoring. It's now having to shift from single-use plastic to recycle plastic, and someone has to pay for it. Now, the rebuttal I often get from clients is, well, the consumer will pay for it through higher inflation. Well, what always happens is the consumer substitutes. Technology, which is greater than ever before, allows for that substitution. So it not only gives us uh, a window into how a company operates, where maybe they could operate in the shadows a bit more. They can't operate in the shadows anymore, and they can substitute for a company that is operating in a more sustainable way. So I just it just seems to me the answer is so simple, the outcome, which is a much narrower gap between average S&P or benchmark operating margins and GDP, the reverse of the last 10 to 12 years. And, and by the way, you're seeing it already. And I was reading an article. This is not a, a, in the US, for example, a blue East Coasts or coasts versus a red interior phenomenon. I was reading articles about the fact that the arrival of the F-150 EV truck, by the way, mm -hmm. the demand for those EV trucks in the heartland is more than ever. Right, because folks have realized they, when you have sticker shock at the pump with six dollar diesel and five dollar gas, yeah. an EV truck looks very appealing. <laughs> right, and if if what we're discussing plays out, which is inflation in commodities, inflation in even oil, for example, because of the fact that 
Um, as as oil and gas companies look at the horizon and say, "Uh oh, there's going to be a decrease in demand for our products," they have basically cut cut capex for the past decade, yeah. Rob, as you know. Yeah. So the oil and gas complex has also cut uh, um, investments in right. new oil fields, yeah. in 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 yeah. new exploration, which means that the potential for gas prices to be very high yeah. is going to continue for a shortages. while, yeah. right? Yeah. That supply shock is going to continue. Yeah. That's going to make EVs look even more appealing right. Yeah, to the anybody. break-even rates are so much lower <laughs> now, right, right. So uh, you are absolutely right. I mean, um, uh, we are, the one good thing about mankind and markets is we always know how to adapt. We have historically adapted, um, and I, I, I think we will adapt to this new regime, if you will, Rob, yeah. of higher prices, um, deglobalization, uh, and higher uh, and, and supply demand cons- uh, uh, gaps and constraints. Uh, we will adjust, but the adjustment, as you have already pointed out in in prior podcasts, it's not going to be free. Somebody right. has to Somebody pay has for it, for and we'll see. Yeah. You know, in some cases it'll be consumers, in some cases it'll be the companies themselves yeah. taking hit to margin. So, and to put a bow on this. That's where integration, ESG integration as an input matters so much and discerning between what's ESG factor, is it financially material, and is it in the asset price? Because ultimately, that's our job. That's what we're trying to solve for, and that's why you're here. Thank you. No, exactly. Um, our, our credit analysts, think about what a fixed income credit analyst is thinking about. Free cash flow, EBITDA. Free cash flow, EBITDA. Yeah. And to your point, how is... Either this, this, how is this extra cost affecting revenues and indirectly EBITDA and free cash flows, or how is it going to decrease demand for their product permanently, yeah. right? EBITDA, for the audience, define that. It's the ultimate measure of understanding if a company is going to be solvent. Mm-hmm. How are they, what, how are they spending? They're, they're, how are they raising and how are they spending, right? Which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It backs out all the, the 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 accounting expenses, if you will, and looks at tangible expenses and tells you uh, the revenues minus the actual tangible expenses. What does that look like for a company? Thank you. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Rob. Thank Appreciate you very it very much. Thank you.